Good morning. Um, something I forgot to announce this morning. Uh, Cody and Erica, for anyone who needs like a new picture or an updated picture um, for the membership board, um, Cody and Erica are going to be taking pictures today, just so everybody's aware of that. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at uh, another lesson in the series on understanding the nature of Christ's church. Um, something I've mentioned before that I think is just very helpful to mention again and again is Christ calls us just to be humble and diligent students of his word. You know, I, I, I've talked to people in the world about, about this illustration that you imagine if, you know, you heard rumors about me, right? Um, you know, that 100 people all say 100 different things about me, but you're never willing to actually go to me directly and just figure out who I am by just talking to me directly, right? And you imagine how silly it would be if, you know, you know where I am, you know you can talk to me, and you hear all these different people saying all these different things, and you think, Brian's just so confusing. I just don't feel like I can ever really know who he is. And it's the same with Jesus and the Word of God. The source of who God is and who he's called us to be, it's all right here. And the fact that there's so much confusion and division in the way that the Bible is taught in the world Really, that should cause us to care even more, to make sure that we're reading the Bible and studying the Word diligently and really being the kind of people Jesus has called to really care and have concern about his teaching and about his people. So last time we looked at the purpose of the universal church, and that is individuals who are in fellowship with Jesus in different cultures, different times. And we looked at last time how individuals in God's Word who are a part of the universal worldwide body of Christ, that their purpose is to be lights in the world, shining the glory of God, showing the world who God is, revealing who God is to the world. We looked at last time how God's people individually are called to be the ones who teach the lost, to work as priests within the world, bringing God to people, bringing people to God. And we also looked at last week how God's people are individually called to, to serve and do good works within the world. And I ended the lesson asking the question, is, is that what the local church is called to be, or is it that the local church is called to equip the saints to be those things individually? What we're going to be looking at this morning is more specifically, well, what is the local church called to be? What's the purpose in Scripture of the local church? Um, if you were here last time, you may remember me saying that I heard an older brother say this one time in talking about these things. It was very helpful to me. He just said very simply that you could think of the universal church, individuals in fellowship with Jesus and the world, that they are God's gift to the world. The local church is God's gift to Christians. And that's really what we're going to be seeing this morning and how the local church is defined in its work. So this orange circle um, really is composed of the common identity that Christians locally are called to have together. That yellow piece in the middle is just illustrating a common work that Christians are involving themselves in. So we'll be looking at that this morning, the purpose of that common identity and common work. And we just have talked about um, over and over again just how to see these things, that the church, by definition, is not a group of groups. It's not a group of denominations. And what we see in the Bible is Christians individually connected with Jesus and then locally in a, a geographical location, are connected to each other willfully to engage in this common identity and common work together. And so Sardis, for instance, in Revelation chapter 3, Sardis as a local group 
was called of themselves to keep themselves accountable to their obligation to serve Jesus together and to be pure, to be whole. And there were many in that church in the majority who were dead, as Jesus calls them, but there was still a minority. There were a few who had not soiled their garments. And so if you're interested in reviewing some of these things, um, Jason has been posting these lessons online. Now, I would encourage you to listen to them again even. These are all just very challenging, very helpful things to review and just really get deep into our minds. So with the purpose of the local church, we're going to be kind of anchoring ourselves in Ephesians. Um, The last time I gave this series was a few years ago now in 2018. For this lesson, I focused on Thessalonians. Um, But for this lesson, we'll be focusing on Ephesians. We've been going through Ephesians this year, and so it just seemed like it was very helpful to to really anchor ourselves where we've already been. Um, But I wanted to say, too, that really if you read any of the early epistles especially, so like Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, you'll find in those letters, if if you're really studying them and you're really looking for your identity within them, you'll find in these letters very clearly how Christians are supposed to work together, the identity we're called to have together. Again, it's only when we're not giving concern to discovering on a personal level our call in Christ that these things seem more ambiguous than they really are, more difficult to understand than it really is. All right, so the first thing I want to bring out is we are called together. Again, not the purpose of our assembling necessarily. That'll be the lesson next week, Lord willing, Um, maybe in a couple weeks. Uh, But the first thing for our purpose together as as a group working together, not just assembling, but just our relationships, we're called to preserve and grow in faith and in hope. So I want to start in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, just our first couple points here are going to focus on Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And even though this is something Paul was writing about and praying for, what we see woven through the tapestry of the New Testament epistles is these are things that Christians locally were to work together to understand better and grow into. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, as Paul is talking about uh, just their faith and their love for one another in verses 15 and 16, he's saying that, you know, in verse 17, he's praying that their, the eyes of their hearts could be enlightened. Uh, in verse 18, to know that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The first point is that we're called to share in and identify with God's glory. So all of Ephesians chapter 1, leading up to this prayer, what is Paul doing? So if you remember uh, Ephesians chapter 1, You'll remember that in the first 14 verses, Paul is giving the most extravagant, most vivid explanation of what it is we've received by being in Christ and in his kingdom. That God has adopted those who belong to him as beloved children, that he has poured out and lavished his grace upon them and the riches of his mercy, being sealed with the Holy Spirit of his promise with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I want to talk more about why that's important in the, the next subpoint we're going to look at. But at the beginning of this year, we talked about the importance of God's calling and how God defines that calling. And our identity, how much we understand the value that we have to God, the value of what he's given us in salvation, the more motivated we are to serve him, to honor him, to thank him, 
the more earnest we are to work together to encourage one another, the, the greater importance we see in our relationships and the higher priority we're able to give toward each other and the needs that we have. And so knowing our identity and how we've been given that identity, the value of that identity, that all serves as our main motivation to walk in a manner worthy of this calling that God has outlined for us to inherit and to understand. Maybe another way to understand this by way of illustration, the, the things that serve as the most core and fundamental aspect of anyone's identity, they will always strive to protect whatever it is in their life that they see as this is what identifies me, right? Think about nations even. When people view that their nation is a part of their identity, they will defend their nation. They will contribute to the well-being of their nation. And so just, just things like that, what they see is this comprises a part of who I am. People are eager to defend and protect and be a blessing to the things that they see constitute their identity. And so if people understand and act on those things in the world, how much more in the world, in the realm of God's kingdom, in the realm of our relationship, sharing in that, in that kingdom together. So just really on that same point, in a sense, look at the next few verses, 19 through 23. Paul also prays to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul first prayed in verse 18 to know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and also what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Something you see in the epistles is you constantly see the writers reminding the readers about God's working and God's power. Did you know that that's one of the most important parts of our relationships together? Is just reminding each other about what God has done for us already, what we've inherited in salvation, how important that is, but also that God is able to deliver us from our trials and our discouragements. Um, Probably one of the most frequent conversations that I tend to have consistently with brethren is conversations that deal with feelings of unworthiness, feelings of worthlessness and loneliness, even feelings like God may not be willing to continue to bear with me or forgive me. I'm struggling too much. I'm giving into the sin too much. I can't escape. Feelings of inadequacy, um, thoughts that end up cultivating great discouragement. I remember even in Alabama when I was living there, um, well, it was after I had moved away and actually was visiting Alabama. I, I sat down and I was talking to an other, older brother who had been a great encouragement to me when I was living in Alabama. And he was talking about just some things that, um, just locally with the congregation and personally, he's been trying to handle and just had been really struggling with. And I remember him looking at me and said, you know, Bryant, I'm just so tired. And earlier this week, um, just with me personally, um, a lot of you know that just earlier this week in the beginning of the week, I was really struggling with some very discouraging personal thoughts. Um, again, just focusing on my weaknesses, my lack of wisdom, just feeling like 
you know, I'm just not being very helpful to the work here even potentially and just very heavy thoughts. Um, but you know what one of the purposes of the local church is? It's to remind God's people in those times about his working, his power, his love, his comfort. You know, everybody that I opened up to about those discouraging thoughts I was struggling with, every single person encouraged me enormously. And that's why we need a local church. You know, because the world is designed to tear down God's work. And we'll, again, we'll talk more about that um, with this next point. We need to recognize our mutual need for help. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, when he's talking about being strong in the strength of God, being strong in God's power against the schemes of the devil, he talks about our struggle not being against flesh and blood in verse 12, but against the forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He urges us to take on the full armor of God, but in verse 18, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The local church exists because we need help. We need encouragement. And all of us, whether we really realize it or not or understand the depth of the struggle, all of us are struggling against the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Some of us may struggle more at different times, but the local church exists so that we can be open about when we need help and help each other find grace, comfort, and mercy in time of need. And that happens when we pray for each other and pray with one another. Um, And lastly, with this point of growing in faith and hope, chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Um, So looking ahead just a little bit, um, he mentions that we're to strive together until we attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. One of the roles of a local church is to examine teaching. That happens in part, obviously, at assemblies, right? So we want to study together, have Bible classes. You know, sermons should convey the whole counsel of God and withhold nothing that's profitable, as Paul told the Ephesian elders. But even locally, beyond just assembling, the role that we have as a local church is to examine, study, And just grow in knowledge and examine teaching, examine doctrine like verse 14 to make sure that what we believe is actually what is found within God's word. And with this, I want to bring up a couple of things about this that I think are needful. Um, I want to encourage you just to remember 1 Corinthians. That was a church that was laden with all sorts of problems. They had sin in their group. They had immaturity in their group, people practicing things and thinking about things, even just morally, that uh, they really needed help to think differently. There were doctrinal problems. There were people at Corinth denying the resurrection of the dead. Um, They needed help reintegrate, like putting together the practice again from scratch of practicing the Lord's Supper again in its proper ordinance, proper practice. So Paul urged them at the beginning of the letter, though, to strive for unity together. And I just want to encourage you to consider this. 
that as we grow as a church or as people are converted from the world, as people move into the area, you know, it's nearly inevitable that we're going to run into disagreements with how to apply or understand things in God's word. And that's not something to be afraid of. With the right attitude, we can always patiently work through disagreements and communicate about those things. And unity is possible. It is possible to come to unity. And to be very frank, I think it's a sign of immaturity in a group when people are too afraid or too timid to bring up something that they view maybe as too sensitive to ever talk about. And and really what ends up happening is by the time those things do get brought up, if they've needed to get brought up for so long, it can really cause problems when it is brought up because it's been going on for so long and you get an elephant in the room and you know, attitudes haven't had the opportunity to be refined. So finally, we need to not be fearful about bringing up challenging questions or what may be considered sensitive subjects, right? We can't be afraid of those things and we can't be so timid as to think that we're doing something wrong when we have a hard question or maybe there's something even doctrinally that we just really need to study out and really try to get on the same page on. Those things are profitable and they're good and healthy. Just as as reference, John chapter 18, verse 20, when Jesus was on trial, he said, why do you question me? I have spoke nothing in secret. Jesus, his most controversial teaching on the most sensitive subjects, it was wide open. Everybody had the opportunity to hear it. Everybody needed to hear and struggle with those things. Acts chapter 15, there were Jewish Christians teaching you must be circumcised in order to be saved and keep the law of Moses. And they came together in Jerusalem and it was not easy conversations, but they came to a unified conclusion. And then when they delivered the message of their conclusion to churches, it was met with great encouragement wherever that message went. There was more unity, the gospel could further progress, And so we just need to be willing to examine teaching, and that needs to be an important part of our relationship together. Secondly, we need to grow into the fullness of Christ's love. Um, I want you to notice Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. So he kind of works from the basis of what's been established in the first few chapters, and he ends that section with this prayer where he's praying that according to the riches of his glory, which he's just got done describing, being strengthened with his power, which he's just gotten done describing, And what this leads us to, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to comprehend not as an island of ourselves, not as just a Christian reading my Bible on my own, but that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The local church exists because that is our avenue. It's the method of growing into the fullness of Christ's love. And just from the most fundamental component of that in the first few verses, and this has been our theme in the year, we're to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this, this identity that we have together, this glory that we are sharing in together, God has given us the responsibility of protecting these things, cultivating these things together, and valuing those things in verse 2 with humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. just want to bring, bring something up here that I think may be helpful. What can happen a lot of times is there could be a lack of balance 
sometimes in a local church where a church may emphasize doctrine so much that they forget about the call to be patient and humble, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. But then a church can be so focused, on the other hand, so much on love in what may be a greatly misdefined way, that they forget about the importance of doctrine, and that as much as we need to love one another, the basis of our love is our love for God, our love for his word, our submission to Jesus' commands as our king. What we're talking about this morning is the role of people working together who are proactively trying to serve Jesus completely, being obedient to everything he said. And so part of our obedience and even our doctrinal obedience is understanding the importance of being patient, gentle, and humble in our relationships, right? So that's the first thing is in striving to grow into the fullness of Christ's love, we need to be striving to preserve this unity of the spirit that's talked about here. But then in verse 15 and 16 further, in preserving the unity of the spirit, we aren't just trying to keep things as they are. We are trying to prioritize our mutual growth in the body. We're trying to prioritize edification. We're trying to prioritize what God's mission is with each of us, that we, each of us, grow to the fullness of God's love in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So the local church is almost like a body of the body. And we've talked about this in past lessons with the nature of the church. One of the tasks that we have is conveying the reality of our individual relationship with the Lord, conveying that invisible reality in our visible relationships, right? So we'll talk about accountability in a moment, right? But in our relationships with each other, our relationship with each other is based in, again, the unity of the spirit that we have in God. What this means is is that we're trying to serve each other in spiritual ways. That it's not just that we're trying to socialize with each other and kind of treat our relationships like it's just a social club, but that there's a mission that God has marked for us to have together. There's a goal. And God is seeking for us to become ambitious about growing to the fullness of Christ together, trying to look out for the needs that we each have. But also in verse 7 of the same chapter, back in verse 7, that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, that we are each equipped in very unique ways to serve very specific needs within this body. And we've been given that grace to serve with. So just as illustration, there's different working members of a body, but each member is a valuable part of the body so that it can work and function. So like Stephen back there, Stephen has certain gifts inherent in who he is individually that exist in him to serve for the growth of the body. And how Stephen serves the body, the gifts he has may not be the same as what Paul has, what Eva, Antoinette, Paul, Kelsey, or what the Adamis have. But each of us have been given grace according to the unfathomable measure of Christ's gift. And all of this has been given in hope that we can serve each other for the growth of the local body. 
And then with this point, lastly, this involves accountability. So you see I've put up uh, the same verses there with each part doing its share for the building up of the body. So there, there's a sense of accountability that we're trying to be aware of where we're at to encourage each other. We're trying to see where there's weakness within the group or where someone is struggling so that we can help each other to work in a proper way. But with Ephesians chapter 5, this is emphasized at another angle. If you just look one chapter further, the importance of our accountability is to encourage each other, to comfort each other, to help each other grow, but then also immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why is the local church so important? That can sound intimidating in a sense, but to those who want to serve Jesus and be obedient to everything that he said, who want to put as much value on his grace as can possibly be placed on it, to know that God has designed a group to work in a way to keep me accountable to his holiness, to help me in my struggles so that I'm not deceived by sin or led astray in my own ignorance, but that people will be able to watch me, help me, and, and, and even point things out to me that I need to hear or even rebuke me at times that are needed, that is extremely comforting. So nearly all of you know I used to work at UPS. Any organization that has any seriousness involved in its operation is always going to have strict measures of accountability so that the function that the organization is trying to accomplish can be accomplished. So at UPS, you know, you would have trainers who would try to train new employees. You had supervisors who would supervise other supervisors. You had all these realms of encouraging accountability, but there were also measures to convey to people, here's the standard we have here. And if you breach this standard, there are going to be consequences. So in the same way, um, well, let me uh, work the way that I'm talking here. This, this third one, we'll come back to the second one. This may involve needing to note and disassociate ourselves from sinning brethren. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. This will just be one of the few deviations from Ephesians here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. So Paul writing the Corinthians said, I wrote, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You know, one of the sad things is this command and its importance is very often lost in the religious world around us and even sometimes just not practiced among churches of brethren. This is important. That we need to understand that God expects us to live holy lives, not on the basis just of our works, but that his grace comes with an expectation that God helps us in his mercy attain to. 
And again, the more we care about what God has done, the more we see Jesus for who he is, the more these things have their encouraging and proper context, right? And so we need to understand that God's grace, his, his, the riches of his mercy, there's an expectation that God reasonably has that we live lives that are holy, that we put away the practice of sin, and that we seek to in everything be pleasing to him. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with these things, that we're not going to need patience, that we're not going to be not going to need help, but it does mean that we're striving to repentantly always live in a way that is more closely knitted to God's holiness and character. So back to that second subpoint, this also involves an accountability knowing and caring for physical and financial needs that may exist within our group. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, if you would just want to turn back there very quickly, just to briefly touch on this, that in Scripture you consistently see that Christians on a local level, that one of the reasons why a local church existed was to care for physical and financial needs among those who were a part of the group. So it says, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Um, sorry, verse 44, I'm sorry. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. And isn't that comforting to know, again, that God has designed a group to work in a way where if there, are some, if there is a serious financial need, that those things are designed to be known in a group and God has designed his people to be helpful with those things as well. That obviously comes with stipulation. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, Paul says, if anyone's not willing to work, he's not, he's not to eat either. 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about um, putting widows in a number to be taken care of by the collection and puts very strict stipulations on that. So it's not that we just use our local collection for anything we, w- we want to, but it's that God has designed Christians to be aware of the needs that exist in the group and to take care of those needs when they're decided that they are worthy of caring for. So lastly, just very briefly, um, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, this is something that I didn't mention uh, the last time I gave this lesson, and I think this is actually an extremely important part of why a local church exists. It's to pursue and honor roles in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We need to understand and honor roles of leadership that have been appointed within the body, even roles that may not necessarily immediately exist, but have existed, which we still benefit from, uh, roles such as the apostles. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. What makes an apostle an apostle? What was the work of the apostles? Why were they unique? Why were they appointed? Prophets. Why were prophets inspired by God? What was their role? What about evangelists? Why am I here as an evangelist? What's my role? What about pastors, elders, or bishops, as they're sometimes called in scripture? What's their role in teachers? Again, these are all roles that God has appointed that they can be understood. It's just a matter of looking into God's word and and seeing what, are, what is said about these roles and their function, right? And again, these things are greatly misunderstood and misapplied in the world. Um, apostles, you see in Acts chapter 1 and other places, the apostles existed in a very closed time frame, in a very close time frame to Jesus' life. 
But churches in the world will say that they have apostles who are still living and teaching and working, and uh, scripturally, that's just simply not possible. And so there's people who take on titles that are really just not possible to inherit. In other instances, you may have churches that have their pastor, right, their head pastor or whatever. But in scripture, there's never just one pastor. And oftentimes, people in the world are pastors who aren't even married, or if they're married, they may not even have children. So again, they're, they're taking a title that they're not even qualified to inherit. And again, when we look in Scripture, we can see in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, we can see qualifications. It's just a matter, again, of simply caring enough about looking into God's Word, asking good questions, putting good study time in, and you easily can find answers to what uh, may be at first seemingly a difficult situation or difficult question. Um, and it's not just that we need to understand and honor these roles, but we also need to work to a point where we can men into these roles. So you've heard me bring up before Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Um, and I'll go ahead and put the first subpoint under this here. Titus 1, verse 5, Paul said, For this reason I left you in Crete, and Titus, this is someone who was an evangelist, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So I think that's a mission that God has set for evangelists, but also for local churches, that this is a long-term goal, I think, for us here. That what we're looking to do is we want to be everything that God has revealed in his word. We don't want to be partial and choose one or, an or another. We don't want to ignore some aspect of growth that God has outlined. We want everything that God has said and called us to be. And so God has charged us the long-term goal of appointing not just randomly and not at the expense of any qualifications. We are striving to appoint qualified men into the work of elders and deacons in the church here. Qualified men. This takes time. It takes commitment. It takes prayer. But just because it takes time, commitment, and prayer, and it may be challenging, or even at times may seem impossible, we need to have the goals that God sets for the church here. And so this is a long-term goal that we really need to have, is we need men to desire the work and to be appointed into that work. So just as I just said, we need men aspiring toward these roles. Um, I've heard very often, I, just, I love this, it can't be said enough, Parents will oftentimes tell their children at a very young age that you need to be aware that one day you need to be striving to be an elder of a local church one day. That people need to be aware that God wants us as we get older to be matured in our faith. That we need to grow to a point where if it's possible, if our living situation makes it possible, we need to be aspiring for these roles. Something I heard that to me was very disappointing. Um, there was at one point a time when I was in a meeting of men and we were talking about potentially uh, elders and deacons, but particularly elders in the group. And there was an older man that said, nobody should desire the work of an elder. And if they desire it, then that's dangerous. And he meant something good, but I think was communicating it in the wrong way. What he meant was, it's not like this political thing. It's not like a political campaign. It's not that you're looking for recognition or you just want to you know, feel like you're in some high position in the group. 
But as Jason recently pointed out, as Jason was leading a study in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he pointed out that in the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3, if any man desires the office of an elder, it is a good work which he desires to do. Yes, being an elder means taking on responsibility and burdens of God's people. That's right. It does mean it will be emotionally and spiritually taxing. But, you know, Jesus' ministry was taxing. It took everything. You know, one of the reasons why I love Jesus, he desired to be taxed in that way. He desired the work of helping God's people. And I think it says that first because it says a lot about a person in their faith and their maturity to recognize the burden that is certainly going to be taken on in the work, and yet they still desire the work. May God help us to have such men. And that's not where it ends. Um, Back in Ephesians chapter 5, this is the last point of the lesson. Um, Just very briefly, we're not going to go through these roles, but a part of roles in the church is not just these roles of leadership with trying to cultivate leaders and and a passion for leading, but the local church exists so that we can encourage and exhort one another in our family roles, in our work roles. Ephesians 5, 22 and 24, wives are instructed to live in a very peculiar and holy way toward their husbands. Verse 25 to the end of the chapter, husbands are told to love their wives. They're commanded to love their wives in a way that reflects Jesus' love for the church. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, children are told to submit to and obey their parents. By the way, just as a side, I grew up where every time there would be a lesson on that or when it be read, a parent would look annoyingly at their child like, see, the Bible says it, do it. Um, I really think with that scripture, it's that parents are taking the responsibility you help your children obey you. You can't just say now, obey me. The Bible says it. No, you train your children to obey you, right? Chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers are told to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yes, mothers have a role. Yes, mothers are going to be very involved. Fathers, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verses 5 through 8, slaves are to be obedient to their masters with sincerity. Verse 9, masters are to give up threatening and know that they have a master as well in heaven without partiality. These are challenging, right? You know, if you scrutinized me, am I, am I following the call of a husband to its perfect tee? Absolutely not. But that's why the church exists locally, is we need to help each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to talk about these things. We need to study these things together. We need to be serious-minded toward these things. We also need to be very merciful toward each other and actually proactively try to help each other where we see that there's that need, right? And so the church exists to encourage these relationships and these roles. So finally, who's who's all of this for, right? We've talked about it's for those who are striving to serve Jesus as Lord, You know, when we see Jesus, we recognize that Jesus himself said things that are very challenging, but beautiful, heart-changing, and humbling to strive to abide in. And we rely more on his mercy. We see more of his grace as we struggle with his commands. So all of these things, they're for people who see the mercy of God, and they want to be as close to Jesus as they can possibly be. Not at the neglect of his mercy, not by works, but being equipped by what he's given to help us to rely more on him in our faith. 
But it's not for the ignorance. There may be people who are still figuring things out and learning and they just don't see the importance of a local church. People who are ignorant need to be taught. They need to understand the importance of a local church. It's not for the arrogant. So there are some who don't see their need for help because they just they don't see the need. And they don't care about the needs of others. And so this isn't for the arrogant who don't see their own needs and how the church can help them deeply with those needs. It's not for the cowardly. It's not for those who are afraid of being exposed or having their weaknesses or sins brought into the light. Um, this is for people who are willing to be exposed, who are willing to be humbled, who are willing to be challenged, and who even are willing to be rebuked. This is for those who understand God's mercy so deeply that they understand that to be in the wrong, to be found in a place of guilt or conviction, leads to greater grace in the end. So may God help us and equip us in our relationships to be the people God has called us to be. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, if, if you're convicted in some way where you want to think more about obeying the gospel, we'd love to talk to you about that, even if it's not during the invitation song here before the Lord's Supper. Um, just please talk to somebody. If, if you're interested in, in what you need to do to become a Christian, we'd be happy to talk to you and baptize you for the remission of your sins that you can share in God's kingdom. But if there's any other need that needs to be made known that's, that's relevant to God's kingdom and your spiritual needs, please bring it forward while we stand and sing your invitation song.